0: Welcome to the Global Seventh-day Adventist Church podcast. Please like and subscribe. Also visit us on social media, um, on Facebook, that's Global Seventh-day Adventist Church. Or um, we also have Instagram, Global's Youth. Please check us out there. Also um, on our website, goebbelssdachurch.org. Um, please uh, join and join us Sabbath mornings at uh, 9.30 a.m. for Sabbath school and 10 a.m. for church. Thank you for that beautiful music. Um, you know the um, my message actually could be it, it's the the music beautiful music the wonder of God's grace amazing grace and um, the story you know the beauty of rules uh, those that's an excellent contribution uh, to the message. Um, you're probably hoping that I would just say amen and we could go uh, go eat with uh, Dave and Kelly, but. Um, I do have just a few remarks to share with you, but those are those are wonderful um, contributions uh, to the message. So you remember that God's amazing grace and the beauty of rules. So the tree of knowledge. Um, you know, I, I won't try to summarize the entire Bible for you this morning, but uh, one I think very useful summary of the entire canon is that the first two chapters of the Bible, Genesis chapters one and two, and the last two chapters of the Bible, Revelation 21 and 22, are the only portions of scripture that depict a perfect creation from the hand of God. Genesis one and two, paint a wonderful picture of a perfect creation, came from hand and given as a wonderful gift to Adam and Eve. Starting with Genesis 3, something went horribly wrong. And that problem and the way God patiently dealt with the problem occupied uh, Revelation 20. 1 and 22 describe for us each a universe and perfect and fresh from the hand of the Creator. So Genesis 1 and 2 describe God's perfect creation as he originally intended it and Revelation 21 and 22 depict his restored creation. The last two chapters of Revelation paint a portrait of a new heaven and new earth, where every curse resulting from sin, as outlined in Genesis 3, has been reversed. Now, much wiser minds than I, than mine have, have made a careful study of these curses. And quite literally, Uh, almost point for point, the horrible consequences of the entrance of sin outlined in Genesis 3 by the Lord himself are reversed point by point in Revelation 21 and 22. In many cases, in fact, in most cases, uh, this reversal of the curse actually in some way that we can't fully conceive of improves on the original now i realize you know our our finite minds struggle with this idea of you know can god do something better than he did originally um this is it's not an inherent limitation of god but the entrance of sin into god's universe in some very important ways, opened a window onto the character of God that gives us a wonderful glimpse of just how self-sacrificing and giving and loving he is. That glimpse of God is revealed in Jesus Christ most fully on the cross. was a depiction of the self-giving loving character of god that would never have been available without the entrance of sin now we want to be careful with these kinds of speculations because uh, god in no way needed sin god did not plan sin sin was not the purpose or the will of god But given the entrance of sin as a result of free will, free moral agency, the love of God has now been revealed more fully than it would ever have been understood before. In fact, the Bible in Hebrew says that Jesus was actually made perfect through suffering. And it's not that doesn't mean that God's perfection can be improved on, it means that our image of God is enhanced by the revelation of His love on Calvary. Now, the scripture reading read included this verse, and in Revelation, um, in fact, throughout the Bible, but particularly in Revelation, we're reminded of this, that whatever is in the middle, uh, something that is observed by John in the midst, this centrality uh, in Revelation indicates importance or significance or value. And here in Revelation twenty verse 22, verse 2, it says, in the middle of its street, that is the New Jerusalem, and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore 12 fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Now, if this is a description of Eden restored... every curse being reversed. We notice something that seems to be missing from the original Eden. So God created a perfect world. He crafted a perfect garden. He formed perfect beings And place them in the garden as a gift. This was God's perfect creation. And Revelation, he restores his perfect creation. And reverses all of the curses. But where is the tree of knowledge? Which was part of his original perfect creation. Now, Revelation's priorities, I, I think I emphasized this already, but we'll just you know, sort of reiterate this. Uh, Revelation's priorities are often revealed by what occupies the middle, what is in the midst. Uh, In Revelation 5, which is actually one of the most important high, high points of Revelation, we see a lamb that had been slain in the midst of the throne. This centrality often reflects value or significance. Now, does this scene of Eden restored, the creation of God reenacted, reversing all of the curses of sin, does it somehow prioritize eternal life as offered in the tree of life over freedom which was actually guaranteed by the tree of knowledge of good and evil. In this scene, do we actually see that God finally admits that he made a mistake in the Garden of Eden? Well, now, our Jewish brothers and sisters, they embrace along with us the Old Testament Scriptures and they place prim- uh, particular importance on the first five books of Moses. Uh, you know, they're called the Torah. And their view of life as enhanced and inspired by the scriptures has in view just this life. In other words, the Jewish in Jewish tradition, Um, You know, of course, they have not accepted Jesus as their Messiah and the promise of eternal life that he represents and so forth. So in many ways, um, many modern Jews um, embrace still the view of the Sadducees that, you know, you only live once. Now, we of course, we hear that voice in secular society all the time. But the Jews also that, you know, this life is all you have. And the promises of God have to do with the enhancement of this life. Uh, increasing joys of this life, having successful harvests in this life and enjoying the fruits of your labor in this life. And the promises in the old, from the Old Testament prophets are primarily interpreted as, as a increase in the happiness and the joy of this brief life on earth. Now in Genesis, the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil were both in the middle of the garden. Somehow they are both important in the original perfect creation of God. But this Jewish tradition emphasizes morality over mortality. Ethics over eternal life. So rather than, you know, um, pie in the sky by and by, the the Lord here is giving us important and interesting lessons for our life here and now. Giving us the discipline of willpower, making the right decision, moral decisions, wrestling with ethical dilemmas, and so forth. That is in play. So, for the Jew in Jewish tradition, they emphasize the tree of knowledge of good and evil over the tree of life. So, they, I believe, incorrectly overemphasize the tree of knowledge of good and evil as sort of a lesson book for living life in the best possible way and making the best possible decisions and so forth. And they diminish or de-emphasize the tree of life. However, both trees were in the midst of the garden. Now their current, their view is that this current temporal life with its many ethical dilemmas helps us grow and to the people that God intended us to be. But this life alone is in view rather than eternity. Now, moving on quickly to the early Christian church fathers. Uh, They had what I believe is a very enlightened view of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It is one that sometimes we have lost sight of in the Christian tradition. Uh, now, I realize some of these early Christian church fathers, you know, that um, they sort of allegorized away the scriptures. And there's other lessons that we can learn that they got off track in a few ways. But I think in this in the area of their understanding of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, they had it exactly right. And it would be nice for us to re uh, resurrect, if you will, their their interpretation. They understood the tree of knowledge. As guaranteeing freedom or liberty. In fact, origin. Um, you know what, some argue that he's the greatest Christian apologist prior to Augustine. Uh, He maintained that God employs persuasion with free rational creatures rather than constraint. In fact, he generalized that freedom was the greatest law of the universe. So the early church understood this tree of knowledge in very positive terms. Now, um, let me just just very briefly sort of summarize this because you know when I was, I always like to say when I was a kid. I mean I you know I'm, I guess I'm not a kid anymore, um, but I do have to admit I'm still confused about many things and there's so much so many things I need to learn, and I love digging deep in the Word of God, and uncovering the truths that are available for us there. You cannot study the Bible too much. You cannot honor it too much. You cannot exalt the Christ that it reveals too much. Uh, It's going to be an ongoing onion of meaning that we will continue to peel throughout eternity. But let me just, some sort of inspired speculation here a bit. How did Adam and Eve know that God was their creator? In other words, what sort of evidence would a modern scientist accept as demonstrating that God was their creator? Well, in the interest of time, um, they had to believe the word of God. They didn't have any direct objective sensory perceptual evidence of the process of creation. So when God came to Adam after he woke up and said, I formed you from the ground and I've created all these beautiful animals and the birds singing and the wonderful flowers and everything. And by the way, here's a garden for you that I created. Adam needed to believe the word of God. And it's revelation of reality. That's kind of a nice lesson for us to keep in mind now. In fact, Adam was asleep when God made Eve. So even that part of creation was not directly observable by Adam and Eve. So they had to accept that everything that they had was a gift from God. Now, did Adam and Eve have any choice in being in Eden? Or being created. Yeah, no. No, they were the result of divine fiat creation. And I, you know, as have I've I've often struggled with this, and I, you know, I'm I I love the some of the insights that the Holy Spirit's finally managing to, you know, beat through my thick skull. You know, God doesn't make mistakes. I often, th- I often thought, you know, especially when I was a kid, I'll just try to defend myself. Um, you know, it was a kid, you know, I was a confused as a kid, you know, but now, no. If, but anyway, um, I've often thought, you know, the Lord, you know, if, if you wouldn't have put that tree of knowledge of good and evil in the garden, you know, everything would have been fine. Right? I mean, that's that kind of a, that, Lord, maybe that was a mistake. You know, it, if, it, if that tree of knowledge of good and evil had not been there and it was just the tree of life, you know, then Eve, you know, wandering away from Adam, that wouldn't have been a problem. You know, she would just find, uh, you know, a, a good apple uh, that actually contributed to life and everything would have been fine and smooth, you know. So, yeah, that's kind of a, that's a little bit of f- flaw there. Well, in this view, and I, you know, um, the former uh, director of the Biblical Research Institute, uh, Anyo Rodriguez, has written an interesting book. i I would recommend it if you haven't seen it. Uh, I have the the reference up here. Uh, Spanning the Abyss, How the Atonement Brings Humanity and God Together. And in this book, it, it, it develops this idea that Origen and the early church fathers had about this tree of knowledge of good and evil. That was the only guarantee that Adam and Eve were free. That represented the only choice they had. So rather than being a flaw or something bad, it was the assurance that God did not impose anything on them that they did not voluntarily choose. They were free to choose against God. That was the only physical manifestation of their freedom. Now, after the early church fathers in the Christian church, um, there was a lot of apostasy. And and, you know, we as an Adventist community, we we were quite familiar with the prophetic uh, vision of this apostasy through the Middle Ages, the Middle Ages church, and certainly history has borne out that the insights from prophecy and Daniel Revelation were, in fact, reflected in the church of the Middle Ages. But one aspect of this apostasy that we often don't focus on, and it's important you know, for our message this morning, is the decline in the interpretation of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The early church fathers interpreted it as a guarantee of freedom, establishing that freedom is the most important law in the universe because it provides a foundation for love. Love cannot exist without freedom freedom to choose. So they had the church started out, early Christian fathers, with a positive view of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, but gradually the interpretation. And the meaning of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil declined until Gregory of Nisa, and the fourth or fifth centuries. I don't know; remember exactly when this was, but it was quite early in the development of the medieval church. Uh, he argued that only one of the trees in the Garden of Eden could have been in the middle. In other words, any you know, every circle has only one center. There's only one. Thing that really can occupy the middle of anything. So we we only have really, there's only one thing that really can be centrally important. And that thing was the tree of life. And notice in fact here he says, uh, the only tree that was really intended for the center to be in the middle, to be the most important part of God's creation was the tree of life. And notice here he says, that killer tree could not have been of God's planting. Mm. Now, Augustine later emphasized that the tree of life represented Christ and the tree of knowledge stood for the will's free choice. Now this sort of casts free choice in negative terms because it is in contrast to Christ. You know the tree of life that represents Christ, but the tree of knowledge of good and evil, in contrast, represents the will's free choice. And so we see very subtly that this tree of knowledge of good and evil, rather than being a gift from God guaranteeing their freedom, uh, it, it came to be that came to be viewed as the problem, human freedom, rather than a gift. Became a problem. Now, I just want to back up a little bit and, and look at the serpent's lie to Eve. Now, all of you know, there are two very important lies that serpent told Eve. And both of them are still in our world today. Uh, one is that you won't actually die. And unfortunately, with the, even within the Christian world, people are taught that you don't actually die. I'm not sure why they don't associate that with the serpent's lie, but in any case, it's it's there. So the, the serpent's lie, the deception that we won't really die, is still in our world today. So that lie has been very successfully promulgated down through history. Another lie, of course, that you're familiar with is that we can be like God. And as we know, you know, many... Uh, the Eastern influences within the Christian church and, and within the Western world uh, in general have led to this notion that, you know, you can be your own God. In fact, you are your own God. If you really look inside, each of us is a God. And when you realize that, you're the, you're the potential of your life really opens up. So those two lies, we're familiar with those, and they're still in our world today. So the serpent, you know, I probably still slithering around because he clearly has a big influence. On even the Christian church. But I want us to back up a little bit here and see that the, the I believe the most important lie that the serpent told Eve was only implied in his initial question. And the serpent said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said. Ye shall not eat of any tree in the garden. You, the, the translation is fine if you say any or every tree. Uh, the, the, the serpent's deception is implied as a premise of this question. That implication is that God is restrictive rather than generous and giving. the very symbol that Adam and Eve were free, the serpent turned upside down and said, that is a illustration that God is denying you freedom. Now the serpent, of course, continued adding to this deceptive implication and Eve eventually accepted this subtle initial premise. God was denying her something good. There was some joy that he had shut off from them, some pleasure or advantage that they could only reach if they would eat of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Literally, he turned upside down the gift of freedom into a symbol for the restriction of God. And, you know, we're, we're still, I believe that, that that lie of the devil is now part of our DNA. You know, uh, just like, you know, children sometimes resist rules around the house and so forth. You know, in our sinful nature, we often experience God's rules as a negative thing. And in fact, rules are beautiful because they ensure our safety and our security and our happiness and our full functioning as human beings. Rules and staying within their boundaries allows us to reach our full potential in terms of the full quality of life, the joy of life, the happiness of life, the personal growth that is available to us. All of those things are maximized by the rules of God. But my selfish heart, when God says do something, ah, you're not going to tell me what to do. No one's going to tell me what to do. Break on through to the other side. Get rid of those constraints. God is restrictive. If you want to really have fun, you got to get outside all those rules. You know, you have to follow your heart and forget about the rules. So now in in practice, uh, bad theology often leads to bad policy Uh, and thus the medieval church echoed the serpent's lie that God restricts human freedom and actually the church as a result imposed coercion to punish and convert heretics on a massive scale. In other words, their philosophy had changed the gift of freedom into a symbol of God's restriction, making human freedom the problem. And so what we need to do if we want to save people is we need to restrict their freedom and tell them what to do and how to worship or else. They thus grossly misrepresented God's beautiful, loving, and generous character. Now, let's take another look at that tree in Revelation Now, the description of this tree is that it was in the middle, in the midst of the street. That indicates its, its centrality, its importance, its significance, but not only is it in the middle of the street, but it is on both sides of the river. Could it be that the tree of life and the tree of knowledge have now merged? The tree of life has two trunks. Certainly the purpose of the tree of life, which is to provide eternal life, And the purpose of the tree of knowledge, which is to provide us freedom of choice, will both remain in the new Jerusalem. We will remain free moral agents throughout eternity. But those two functions of freedom and life had to be separated in the Garden of Eden as a assurance that Adam and Eve would learn to trust God. But in the new Jerusalem, the two trunks have joined. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. A need for healing implies illness. And disease implies victims more than villains. The book of Revelation makes a correct representation of the character of God its main focus. That's the primary purpose of the book of Revelation is to remove the curse of sin which started with a misrepresentation of the loving character of God. Our lack of trust in God and our questioning God and our responding to him as restrictive and narrow is a result of sin. Revelation now seeks to correct that um, mudslinging against God, that deceptive lie that God is restrictive rather than giving Notice this quote. This is from uh, Tonstad. It's a commentary on Revelation, and I, I really like it. It's been a blessing to me. I love this quote. Speaking of the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. In the home stretch of Revelation, the horizon is brokenness and healing. Not sin and punishment. God stands at the center of its message in full awareness that nothing is more in need of healing than humanity's view of God. That's why in the book of Revelation, the lamb slain from the foundation of the world is in the midst of God's throne. The lamb of God is in the middle of his throne, the most important representation of God that he could offer to heal the brokenness of this world, stemming from our misunderstanding about our loving heavenly father. The lamb slain from the foundation of the world, God actually offers as his primary solution to the essential theodicy challenge Echoed in the souls under the altar in the fifth seal, God, how long? Asking why is there evil and suffering and pain and death in a universe created by a loving, all-powerful God—that is the central theodicy challenge. So, if you've never heard of that word, that just means that's what it means. You, you have heard of the question, "Why suffering?" And <laughs> it is. And if it's not deep within your own heart, then you haven't lived very long. But that's the theodicy challenge. God offers Christ, the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, to heal the wound of his character being misrepresented by evil and suffering. God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. Jesus said, I, and I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. Christ hanging on the cross in suffering and agony for us, becoming a victim of the curse of sin, reveals a God who would be willing to give up his own eternal existence so that you might be saved. This is not a God who would deny you of anything. There is no good thing that he will withhold from those who walk uprightly. Psalm 1611 says, in thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand are pleasures forevermore. God isn't restrictive. He denies you nothing that would bring you happiness and joy and allow you to reach your full potential. It is a deceptive lie of the devil to think that going to church restricts you and keeps you from something that would be fun. That's one of the central curses of sin coming from the serpent's mouth. Christ's revelation of God's beautiful character of love heals our brokenness, resulting from Satan's lies about God. Reconciling us to our loving Heavenly Father. Wonder, O heavens. And be astonished, O earth.